You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers initiative that is now involving Avengers from a multiverse, possibly uh, maybe adding some new... I don't I don't even know anymore. Uh, and with me, as he is every single week, to talk about some semblance of assembled Avengers, John Mills. That's right. I'm here. I am from across the universe, into the multiverse, through the... Uh, all oh wait the the um the uh antimatter dimension oh i, I was wondering right? why you had yeah, hair antimatter dimension today that well and, you know me with hair would cause the world to end <laughs> i can tell you that much but here i am on assembling adventures we are very excited to be here we're talking about no way home this episode which is very exciting uh to to reach this in all honesty uh it feels like a milestone at this point uh, but before we dive into the third spider-man film here in the mcu uh we'd love it if you would rate the show an Apple Podcasts, spotify those type of places help people find the show of course we're in the main 602 club feed and be really cool uh, if you subscribe to the show so you got all of the episodes as soon as they dropped. You could also do us a big favor by following us over on social media, The 602 Club on Twitter, and of course, at The 602 Club TFM on Instagram. The entire network is on Facebook together at facebook.com slash trekfm. We've got the entire network online at trek.fm, and we would also appreciate it if you would go to Patreon and support us there, because it's a lot of money to put all these shows out each and every week, uh, is what we do. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and join part of our team. So... John, I've got a question for you because I, I believe that this one is different than a lot of the other films uh, in Phase 4, which is I believe that you actually made the trek to a movie theater to see No I Way did. Home. So I wanted to hear, I mean, because this is your first experience with the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a theater for quite a while, honestly. First time since Endgame. So I... uh I was reticent. I said it looked cool. I also was slightly dismissive. I said uh, Into the Spider-Verse had already come and gone. I'm good. This looked. I was like, this is probably just reductive. They're trying to copy their past success. I, I don't know if I'm interested in that. I was very skeptical. And I had to be basically talked into seeing this in the movie theater. I had to have so many people say, no, this is worth it. You've you should go see this. And my usual caveat with everybody is if if I go on your word and I don't enjoy it, I'm holding you personally, fiscally, and morally responsible for what you have cost me. And that carries consequences. And everybody was still willing to back it up. So I said, okay. So I got my dear friend Davis together. And I think, it, I think we wound up seeing this post-Christmas because it was around that time mm -hmm. of year, I think. Yeah. And yeah, because we exchanged gifts, um, which was really nice. And we saw it at the AMC Dine-In Theater at Disney oh, Springs. So theater. we went all out. We had delicious food. The seats were a little closer than I would have liked, but it was still a really packed theater for, I mean, the Dine-In Theaters aren't very large, but I was like, wow, there's, there's still a crowd turning out for this thing. And so, yeah, it was, I gave it every possible chance to disappoint me. When I went to go see this in the movie theater. So, I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of people kind of talked it up for you. And, and that's one of the things that that got you to the theater. Um, but I mean, I mean, you know, there were other films. And so what was there anything else about this movie that just kind of made you be like, OK, this is one I probably need to see on the big screen. Nope. It was strictly word okay. of mouth that got me in. Man, that's awesome. It was strictly word of mouth. 
Because if you recall from everything we've done up to this point, I wasn't nuts about the first two Spider-Man yeah, movies. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was like, nah, nah. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they, well, I mean, I saw the first one. I hadn't even seen the second yeah, one by this true. point. Yeah, that's true. I remember that. Because so many people had told me it was no good, and I wasn't a big fan of Homecoming. And I was like, you know, it's just not. And given the batting average of what had come up to this point in Phase 4, what I had actually encountered with WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, what I had heard about Eternals, because, of course, here for this show is the first time I watched Eternals, I was off the Marvel bandwagon. It was strictly word of mm-hmm. mouth that got me in there. Which... I think is definitely something that, you know, we can't discount how much that means for films. So I, I think we've seen it um, with with movies even recently. I'm thinking of um, the Dungeons and Dragons movie doing really well because of word of mouth. I think Super Mario Brothers has done that way as well. And um, oh, yeah. as we're recording, it looks like, uh, you know, actually the Guardians 3 may uh, benefit from some good word of mouth as well. So... But no, I I mean, I'm I I'm really interested. I I wanted to get your opinion on that um, because it's actually not something. I mean, I knew you had seen it, and and I know your opinion of the film in the sense that I've seen your letterbox rating for it and that kind of thing. But we're revisiting it. Um, but we'd actually never talked about that, and you know, uh, yeah. and I think it's it's legitimate because. Um, this movie kind of took the world by storm and became a film. Of course, it was over the holiday season, so it was right in that sweet spot where there wasn't a ton else coming out, especially for families. And this became a movie that a lot of people just went and saw a few times over the holiday season uh, there. And I'm I'm with you in the sense that, you know, at that point, too, I had been quite a critic, I think, of the the Spider-Man films that the MCU had done. And, you know, this one, you know, yeah, I, it had the nostalgia factor of the fact that it was bringing back these two uh, Spider-Men from the previous iterations. But like you, I also had this feeling of, I mean, it, isn't that just kind of the the what we did in into the Spider Verse? You know, like isn't that the whole thing you know, there? And so I I was definitely on the same front as you, which is going into it. I was going to see it because of the podcast, but I was also very trepidatious going in, thinking, is this really going to be good? Especially with the track record we've had here in Phase Four. You know, usually we were cagey about what what our ratings and reviews are, and this is obviously a revisit. But so long as we're talking about that first thing, I think what it was, and especially having to do with my first reaction, and this is if you want to come back into, you mentioned Super Mario Brothers, it's word of mouth. But what powers that word of mouth and people continually discount this is sometimes studios spontaneously and amazingly remember that why people go to the movie theaters isn't because Nicole Kidman goes in before and sits there and <laughs> smiles at you and says, it's because this is where magic is, because without actors, the world would end. It's no nonsense like that. No, John, it's, it's because, because AMC, w- we make movies better. Yeah, right. No, but look, okay, this is where I go into a little bit of a comedy bit, okay? Because I, 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 want, I want to be very much upfront that I, I'm a guy that loves life. I'm a very pro-life guy. I, I think everything is, is very pro-good existence. Let's do it. Let's go out there. Let's do our thing. Let's be good. Let's be good to each other. All of that type of stuff. That's who I am. And I play up the curmudgeon part. But life is difficult, man. It sucks sometimes. You get kicked in the teeth. You have a crap day at work. Your kids don't treat you well. Your wife yells at you. You get cut off in traffic. Somebody flips you the finger for no reason. Somebody's rude to you somewhere. You can't do anything about it. And S rolls downhill and all of this stuff. And you just sometimes, sometimes it's just nice to have a movie where they say, you know, you remember having fun. You remember being happy. How would you like to take two to two and a half hours at the inexpensive cost of 10 to $15 and just have fun? And I got to tell you, Carnival Barker comes up to me and says, you know, for just $15 and the, the overpriced burger that you're going to have at AMC dine-in theaters, because boy, is that overpriced. I will let you have fun for two and a half hours and forget 
that your your mortgage note is due in three <laughs> days and that, you know, maybe your 401k, you have to debate whether you should be withdrawing that much before, even though, because things are getting so tough. But seriously, I, and I'm sorry to go on a rant like that, but this movie is the nostalgic thing sucks when it's done wrong. But when it's done right, it's this. It's let's honor and respect why we came to these movies in the first place. And it was because we wanted to have fun and believe that good guys mattered and we could make a difference and be happy for a little bit. We could find joy at the end of that tunnel. I mean, I think that's such a great point. And I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, You know, I think... Let's talk about that because, you know, obviously this film, there is so much nostalgia built into it with the fact that we are going to bring back uh, Andrew Garfield and we're going to bring back Tobey Maguire, our previous Spider-Man, and utilize them here in this story. And, And you just mentioned it. Obviously, you know, nostalgia can go horribly wrong with movies, um, but it can also go terribly right and I think we would both agree, it sounds like, that this movie is a place where the nostalgia is perfect. It's palpable, and and you're constantly aware that it's there the moment that those two step on screen. But the way that it's done is is done with such, I think, a plum and heart that you don't care that they're playing you, right? Because the story has i think legitimized their use and and i would and 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 the re i'm I'm gonna go ahead and give my reason as to why i think it works is because we didn't realize that this spider-man series was kind of zack snydering us in the sense that spider-man was not going to be fully formed until the end of this film the spider-man that we all expect actually doesn't come to the very end of this movie when he's swinging through the Mm. same place that uh, Hawkeye and Kate Bishop are about to destroy in a couple of episodes of Hawkeye, right? Um, That's an interesting thing to have not really realized that we weren't going to be getting the full Spider-Man lesson until three movies in. And the way they utilize those characters from the previous films to help teach that lesson to this Spider-Man, I think helps legitimize then the use of their nostalgia in a way that makes it feel like a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. You know what I mean? I do. I will, I will add on to that point in that one, it's a nostalgic thing to bring back the villains as well and play on that. So, yes, if you've seen all of those movies, there's payoff there. But really what I paid attention to this time was I said, okay, I've seen the magician pull the trick. Does it work on its own merit? It works on its own merit specifically because by by reintroducing them, you can explain their origins in a couple of sentences instead of having – what I will always refer to as the Batman Returns problem, where you have to have fully fleshed origins for all of your villains before they interact with the hero. With this, it answers the Rambo First Blood Part 2 instinct that has only grown stronger over time of the audience needs to get to the action as quickly as possible. And it gets you there fast. But by the time those other two Spider-Mans, Spider-Men, however you want to say it, show up on screen, it's about 90 minutes. That is as long as some other movies you will watch in your life. They've given you a full emotional arc to take the character to a certain spot in the amount of time before they cash in that chip. When they cash in that chip that you're talking about, you've hit a point where you realize it's the only trick left in the bag that they can pull. That feels like the authentic point that you can introduce them. And that, I think, is a specific reason why it works so well, is because of the restraint in terms of pulling in 
Maguire and Garfield is it waits until it has no other choice storytelling wise, but to bring them in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what the beauty is, is that, you know, the other thing that this helps do is it helps us realize that, you know, the MCU has been creating its own version of Spider-Man by playing with the mythology and utilizing it in their way, right? They're not doing a straight one for one like these other movies have done. And so therefore the MCU is really its own thing as it has been with all of its heroes, right? And so again, I think that's the other thing that really helps here because, you know, instead of it being another Uncle Ben story uh, where that's what causes this this dark night of the soul for Peter Parker and MCU, it's Aunt May and the loss of her and her teaching him the lesson of that with great power comes great responsibility. And again, I think the the beauty of this and the way that it's been done is that you know we've established this character in this universe for the last two films that he's been in and regardless of how much we loved them or not it allowed us then to be at a place where now this character is actually ready for this final lesson right it's like one final lesson from Aunt May. And then what's interesting about this Spider-Man is that he is literally going to be alone in the universe by the time this movie is over. He will know no one and no one will know him. And so I think the other thing that then helps those other films in some way be a little bit better is that when you get to the full arc – we needed to spend some time with this Peter inside this u- this universe with other people and all this because we are going to leave him in a place where when he's, you know, set in this movie, yes, he's going to be the Spider-Man that we kind of all think of, right? But he's also going to be very different in the sense that, like, he isn't going to have anybody to be able to lean on. And so... Those other two help him be able to learn the lesson and move forward and do what they do. They keep saying it in the movie. It's what we do, right? Uh, and they give him the strength to do what Spider-Man have always done in the comics, which is to do the right thing regardless of the cost. And again, it's that... It, those two and the nostalgia and everything work to make that work. What also makes it work is that there is an echo here of, okay, first, let me say this. The ultimate sacrifice made by Peter is not a simple copy of the willing to die thing. There's a real philosophical argument here of what's worse making the sacrifice that Tony Stark makes to die for the world and his friends or to die to the world, but know who you are and nobody remembers you. Like it, that's, that's definitely a sort of death. And that's, that's a really deep thing for somebody to go through. That's definitely going to be a life changing thing to say, I, it's the time travel paradox thing of mm-hmm. I remember everything that happened, but nobody else does, and I could never convey to them what happened. This is a burden I have to carry of my on my own. There's a carrying forward of that in life that is like really you can see how much that would shape him. But additionally, what I think is really interesting, and Doctor Strange, the way that he's used and expressed in the film, works on its own. But then, and this, this is another thing, this is how nostalgia is when it's successfully done. Not the way J.J. Abrams does it, but the way that it's successfully done is Doctor Strange works and is explained and functions perfectly with the needs and the reality of this story. But then, if you know the rest of it, the echo here of Doctor Strange to Peter and Doctor Strange to Tony of 
it, it's very evocative of Endgame when he holds up that one finger and says, this is it. You, the one finger isn't, this is the one choice. It's, it's pointing in a way. You got to make this choice. You got to do this. And so I really enjoy Doctor Strange here being used as that spiritual catalyst to say to the hero, I've done my part and my part is to bring you to this moment so that you make your choice. And I I, want to ask you this. I think it's successful because despite everything else going around, the story is solely about Peter. This is his story. Everything else serves him. It makes me think of a Lucasfilm or a Lucasfilm animation, uh, like Bad Batch and stuff like that. When they tell a story, it points at the character you're supposed to pay attention to. No matter how much else is going on, it points at who you're supposed to look at. I think it does that successfully. Do you think this pulls that yeah, no, off? I, I, I like you bringing up the, the Doctor Strange element there and, and utilizing it to say that because – I I 100% agree with you in the sense that Doctor Strange is meant to reinforce all of the lessons that Peter is learning um, and even to teach Doctor Strange some lessons from Peter by Peter doing what they do, what Spider-Man do, right? Which is um, to be willing to go the extra step, right? Right. and 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 the beauty of this because the the nostalgia tied with with the two characters that we get from the other universe right this peter is able to help them see that they can be better versions of themselves by going the extra mile right that um and and what's interesting too is because this Peter realizes that they're in a universe that has technology that those other universes didn't, and therefore he does have the ability to be able to save them in the way they couldn't, but he can here and now before sending them back, which I think is really beautiful because there's this really big question about the idea of can we change our fate? And Dr. Strange keeps saying you can't. What's fascinating about this philosophical discussion is that Peter will change their fate, and yet he cannot change his own. He will still face Mm -hmm. the same decision and the same lesson that every single Spider-Man somewhere along the way has to learn, which is that with great power comes great responsibility, and that happens at the cost of somebody close to him dying that he cannot save. Mm -hmm. And so there's something really so beautiful, like you're saying about the way each one of these pieces is working in concert to shine a light on our character here in a way that makes him feel fully rounded by the time the film ends. And the most heroic he's ever been But at the same time, having completely altered and changed even the way now that we would watch Tobey Maguire's films or Andrew Garfield's films and that, you know, especially you think with Andrew Garfield, he finally gets some full resolution as a character in a way that he never got because they never did a third film. I love that Andrew Garfield gets his time in the sun. Because he was always great as Spider-Man and the movies never did his performance justice. And it's such a warm and fuzzy feeling to get the sense that it's, it's, uh, it's almost like a different version of Chris Evans getting to come back as Captain America (laughs) after being the human torch in those fantastic four movies. It's like, yeah, it wasn't your fault, pal. Let's, uh, let's give you some love here. And I love that Garfield got love out of this, that that people expressed appreciation, were able to say, look, we might not have liked your movies, but you were great. You were you were awesome. Well, and even people calling you know who- for the like, can we get an amazing Spider-Man three after this? Right. Like, right? And I, who wouldn't be There's up no reason for that? you can't. 
I, I actually would. That's the magic thing about this movie is I go out and I hated Spider-Man 3 and I despised Amazing Spider-Man 2. Like I hated it so much that I, I like I, I was like punching air on the way out of the theater. <laughs> I was like, no, this is awful. Um, But I got to tell you, man, this, the secret weapon. Okay. Look, Marissa Tomei is phenomenal as Aunt May. Even if you haven't seen any previous uh, MCU Spider-Man movie up to this point, she's great as Aunt May. There's real emotional weight to her performance and her death scene really hits you. Like you really believe that these characters love each other and that there's a real moment there. But an absolute magical secret weapon that the MCU has in John Favreau as happy is it, it it cannot be overstated. John Favreau, every time I see this guy and I see him in this role, or I know that he's doing something with the Mandalorian or something like that. I think back, I'm old enough to remember seeing him in. Swingers. Oh yes. Oh yes. And if I got in a time machine and I traveled back in time and I saw myself, and I show up, and I got over the fact that I saw myself from the future visiting me. But I show up, and I go, yeah, and by the way, that guy right there, um, he's going to be not just a huge star and a terribly successful director, but he's going to be the secret weapon of both Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And back then, I'd be like, wait, there's a Marvel Cinematic Universe? And that would blow my mind in and of itself. But it is such a testament to him and his innate talent, networking, whatever you want to give credit to, that he has become so indispensable to these franchises and their success. It's ridiculous. And it's it's great because we're do we're we're doing this assembling Avengers thing, and I think all the way back to the original Iron Man. And that's the template that the entire MCU gets based off of. And then I flash forward to this and I say, he may not be directing this, but the character he chose to cast himself as just so he could be in his Iron Man movie is now an amazingly magical secondary character in this who has some of the Mm -hmm. best scene stealing comic moments. Like I it's, it's ridiculous. You cannot under you cannot oversell uh, Favreau, but all that to say, Marissa Tomei. I mean, as Aunt May, that scene alone, her death scene, is played so incredibly well, and ha- is full of so much emotion. It really is the heart of this film. And it's the moment that everything goes off of it. I feel more emotional weight to that moment than any time I watched or read Uncle Ben dying. Because usually Uncle Ben's death happens so early in Spider-Man's arc that it's like, okay, right, right, right. Uncle Ben died. Great power, great responsibility. Get it, get it, get it. This everything that's happened up to this point you're like oh wow like it gives real weight to those words yeah you know i i think uh, and this is where i'm going to praise john watts and um the 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 creation of the spider-man and the mcu and, and again i think they are actually taking a page from Zack snyder's uh, playbook with what he was doing with Man of Steel and Superman in the DC films, which was it is something special to be able to spend time with a character as they walk down the road to becoming the icon that we know. And this movie. I think proves how well that works when you allow the arc to play all the way out because like you're saying, we have this emotional relationship with Peter and his aunt in a way that we've never had in any of the previous Spider-Man films because it happens like the snap of a finger. 
because it happens at the beginning of the movie and we don't know Uncle Ben and we don't have that emotional connection with him and Peter and the character and all that in the way that we have here. So I 100% agree with you that Marissa Tomei and her performance here and the relationship between the two of them, because it's been two movies building and like this happens, what, 65 minutes into this film, 70 minutes into this film where she she dies. Um, uh, 70 yeah, or 80. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's so incredibly it's moving. Deep in the film. And I found myself, we were, my wife and I rewatched the film uh, this week before we were recording here because I just wanted to get re-familiar. It's been a while since I've seen this. And... You feel the emotion building up behind your eyes, right? You're like, is it dusty in here? Because, and I've seen this movie a bunch of times now, right? But that's an impressive thing that I'm still feeling connected with this character Mm -hmm. story, even though I've seen this movie multiple times. I think another thing is the way that they deal with the death is it's not a big dramatic explosion. It's not a big dramatic robbery. It's not a gunshot. It's not that... It is actually, it feels very, quote unquote, real. And people don't appreciate this sometimes. I Like, I, I'm not trying to bring the room down, but the way she goes reminds me of a, a news story I read one time where there was a guy, he was just like out bringing in his trash cans or something. And some, some piece of S doing some sort of initiation or mistaken identity or something, shoots the guy. And the guy, he doesn't die instantly. And the story was that he like he goes in and he sits down at the kitchen table and his daughter's crying because she's scared. And he says, it's okay, honey, it's okay. And then he slumps over and he never wakes up, right? I'm not saying that to bring the room down. It's a real world story. But it's to say that in the real world, sometimes you don't realize that that was your last shot. And May having that moment where she gets up and she's like, I- I'm just, I'm a little out of breath. I'm a little out of breath. I got to, I got to sit down. And then Peter realizes how bad the injury is. And she sort of realizes, and they have that moment. It's the weight of that moment is the two of them realizing oh my gosh, I'm not coming back from this. And in those moments, you, and I I speak a little bit from personal experience here, I've never had anything like this happen, but like there are moments that you have with somebody who's near the end of life where you don't know what to say. You're you're stuck. You don't know. You're like, you're you're looking at them and you're like, I I, I don't know what, I don't, like everybody likes to think that they're going to have this big dramatic moment where it's like Peter with great, great responsibility, but it's, you're sitting there and you're, you're fumbling. You're trying to think you're like, I, I, I got nothing because your brain shuts down because everything just, you're, you're faced with the ultimate truth of it all, that it's going to come to an end. And I think that's what they, I think that's what Mar- Marissa Tomei plays really well here is the realization of somebody who doesn't want to say, I'm about to die, but she knows what's going on. But even in that moment, she doesn't want to say those words because she knows that Pete, like she knows what it would do to this. Like it's such a weird complex moment. And to, you know, to make another callback, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of like that whole thing when Anakin watches his mom die where, you know, he's he's sort of shutting down. He's like, it's going to be it's going to be OK. And now that plays slightly differently, but it's similar in the sense that, like, you don't have a big you don't have an epigraph in your brain. Write this on my tombstone when I go out. You're just like, what What do I say here? What, what am I doing? And that's that's why I think the scene plays so incredibly well. And. I think it ranks up there with, um, you know, something like Spock in Star Trek Two. It's a great point, right? What kills you in Star Trek Two is Spock and Kirk trying to say those things that there's so much to say, mm-hmm. but what do you say yeah. in that moment? You don't know. 
and you're fumbling for words. And I, I think that I'm no, sorry no, to ramble no. again. Yeah, I don't think you're rambling at all. But obviously it taps into an emotional I, thing. You know, again, I think that this is the thing that and, – and why people responded to this movie so well. Um, because it, I think, you know, we, we talked about the, the other two uh, iterations of Spider-Man here for uh, this podcast with the other two films – and, you know, I think both of us had a better uh, response to Homecoming seeing it again. I think we both rated it more highly than we had at the beginning when we first saw it. Yes. Uh, and yes. your your reaction to Far From Home was, was, wasn't was fantastic, but, you know, it, it wasn't no. like the worst thing you'd ever seen. But, again, the reason I think then that we have the feelings that we do about this death and about this scene is because of the emotional credit that they have earned through those two films. Um, and they are cashing it all in here. And I think they do it in a way that works. And you, you know, you had mentioned happy beforehand and right, you know, they make a, a whole joke about their relationship and everything like that. But even that allows this to have such weight, right? Because May hasn't meant just something to Peter, but she's meant something to Happy. You you also know what she means to the mm -hmm. community because of the work that she puts in, um, you know, before the blip and after blip. You know, the the, the center that she helps run has helped many people. And so it, it you have this character that not only means something to our title character, but also means something to so many other people in the cinematic universe here uh, in a way that's been so subtly built that, yes, this death has the gravitas needed in a way that we've never seen for Spider-Man ever. Um, and I think that is what makes it so special. And so, you know, I just, I, I couldn't, agree with you more um i i also wanted to to ask you because another part of the nostalgia here is that you know we we have the j jonah jameson character play a huge role in this film and <laughs> yep yep i was astounded in re-watching this film at the ways in which this was poking at how news organizations these days come at every story with an agenda and are therefore looking for whatever support that they can muster for it or to, you know, fabricate for it and looking to stir up emotions for ratings. And it was so wonderfully done here because, yes, it is comedy. And yet, unfortunately, I think this is just the reality of the news world that we actually live in today. It's the news world we live in today. They go about it where they cast him as an Alex Jones type, which is fair. It's funny. It's accessible. It's the joke we all get. The internet guy that's a little unhinged. But what is really interesting about it is that it shows that as nutty as J. Jonah Jameson is in this timeline, he's the one that gets there for the scoop that winds up being the craziness, that winds up being what's actually happening. Oh my God, there's a giant lizard person fighting a Spider-Man with a Dr. Octopus and a exploding buildings and a Green Goblin and all of those sorts of things. But additionally, I think you're absolutely right in that it really points a finger at the way we all get news now, where it's all filtered through a channel that is primarily focused on confirmation bias. That it's a, he's going there to prove that he's right about everything. He doesn't care what's actually happening. He's there to prove that he's right. And what people i think sometimes overlook in the real world is that these internet shows that they might have a problem with are simply the tabloid journalism of william randolph hearst or uh you know the 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 daily news or something like that 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 has been out there it's 
since the dawn of time. It's simply the latest iteration of it. And I appreciate the way they use J. Jonah Jameson here now, specifically because the type of newspaper that the Daily Bugle was, as a kid, I didn't understand that it was a tabloid, that it was the weekly world news. And by transposing it into this modern understanding of J. Jonah Jameson, I suddenly get the joke that they've been telling the whole time, that it's it's the rag that's in the checkout lane of your supermarket. I never got it. I never understood that before this moment. And suddenly, this expression of it made it funnier for the entire time mm-hmm. I've been reading Spider-Man. Yeah. I don't read Spider-Man anymore. I don't have the time to really keep up with comics the way that I used to sort of thing. But I did read Spider-Man. It was one of the ones that I stole from my brother's comic book collection all the time. I get the joke now. And I think it's so brilliant because the writing and the direction have actually enriched the whole history of Spider-Man with the way they've told the joke this time. I suddenly get it. And I love it as a result. And and I think, you know, what's crazy is is that the joke is also poking at just everything we see today when it comes to 24-hour news, cable news cycle, and, you know, a trillion different podcasts, and, you know, everything that we see. And and I think, like you said, and I, I love that. The idea that he's going there for confirmation bias, not the truth. Because the truth is irrelevant these days to anyone. It's all just about putting forth your point of view, whatever that is, and that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. And whereas, and I think that this is kind of an interesting thing, it's the juxtaposition with the rest of the story we're seeing, which is about how the truth really matters to characters like Peter and uh, to Doctor Strange and to the other two Spider-Man and to MJ. Um, and because it's the truth of the situation that is is f- allowing them to be the best versions of themselves. Um and that are able to do the truly heroic things like Peter in the end being willing to, like you said, very deeply philosophically give up his being on this planet in a way that has him in a living death. Like literally he's a walking dead man. Nobody knows who he is. And to be willing to take that on himself to fix the mistake that he created is, you know, an incredible sacrifice. And it's all because of the actual truth of what's happened, not some fabrication. And I just think there's something really beautiful about that. Well, I I know I know we've been going, you know, for the better part of an hour here. But there's one question I feel like I need to ask you in that Peter emotionally reacts a way that I can understand in an emotional sense where he feels great sympathy for these villains that are all going to die, even though they're villains. They haven't been villains to him specifically. And that's why he's able to say, I got to try to save them. Dr. Strange is much more the intellectual saying, yeah, everybody dies. These guys aren't, you know nothing. They mean nothing to you. What do you think about what the film is saying about the tension between the intellect and the emotion of this type of moment of saying, like, there seems to me a very deep philosophical argument about the value of life 
and the tension that's created between the intellectual and the emotional arguments for certain decisions that are made. And do you think that the film is handling this question responsibly? Or do you think it's stumbled into an argument that it isn't prepared to make or present? I really like that question because I believe that um, what it shows is that what is right is the median between what is emotional and what is logical. Because Peter here is willing to do the right thing regardless of the cost. Because that's what, you know, Aunt May says, this is, this is what we do, right? Because it's the right thing to do. And that's what the other Spider-Men say. This, this is what we do. And so, yes, there is a, um, because what's interesting is that the logical argument leads to one side, which is that it's not my problem. We got to send him back in the grand calculus of the universe. This is what happens. On the other side, the truly emotional side is the one where Peter is wanting to kill somebody. And so, again, the right thing to do is straight down the middle, right? It's it's the tough choice on both sides of the coin. Um, and I think that's the, the beauty of this. Um, and I really appreciate, I think, that the film is not ca- trying to cash a check. It hasn't built up the capital to cash. Um, and I think what it really teaches us is an incredibly important lesson that the hard thing to do um, is usually the right thing to do. And it's going to, and it's going to cost us something, right? What is right is almost always going to cost us something, and so I think that this movie is doing a fantastic job of not only portraying that, but helping to teach a very valuable lesson to anyone that's willing to pay attention to it. Yeah, I. You know what's what's fascinating is usually like here in the six hundred two club feed is we. We have a very structured sort of like, oh, well, you know, this element, that element. I think what truly speaks to the greatness of this film, truly speaks to it, is the fact that this is the type of conversation that you have coming out of a film yeah. like this. This is this is that, all right, we're going to sit down over a soda and a burger. We're going to really chat this out. We're going to talk about what this movie made us think about, what this movie made us feel which it which ties directly in my argument back into what I was saying earlier about do you remember fun do you remember just having fun when you have fun you want to keep talking about fun you go on the roller coaster you you're full of adrenaline you want to talk about what was great about the roller coaster and the that first tale oh no 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 i love this the the loop no 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 i love the way that velocicoaster like accelerates you twice before you go upside down and you go on about it and that, I think, is the mark of a truly successful film, and especially an event film like this, is that you get energized after watching it because you want to talk about all the things that it threw at you, and you want to talk about how much you love that Tommy, Toby McGuire and Andrew Garfield, their Spider-Men felt different, but you understood and respected what made them the same. And this idea that we all love, this is not Kirk and antimatter Kirk finding each other. This is not Spock and goateed mirror universe Spock finding each other. This is certain, well, actually, maybe it is like mirror universe Spock. There are certain people, and in this case, it's Peter Parker, where they are the same person at their core, regardless of which version you look at. You go through the multiverse And that speaks to something very comforting to all of us that certain people are simply good. That they are there to be good, to do good, and to model good. And it's refreshing to see that, intentionally or not, a film support the idea that at the core... There are people who are simply, no matter what circumstance you encounter them, they're just good people. And you're going to be glad that they're there. And I think 
I think this movie winds up making that statement too. Yeah, no, I I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I I do have a, a there are a few things that I think would be fun to 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 kind of discuss right before we get to the end here. But one, I got to ask you, uh, how'd you feel about Matt Murdock showing up, uh, Charlie Cox here as Daredevil as his lawyer? It was cheap, but a great cheap. It was um, really slick, specifically because they didn't show him, they didn't have him come back as Daredevil. It was, I thought it was nice because, again, it's one of those things where it's like, if you know the full lore of the on-screen Marvel characters, you're, you're given that extra jolt of adrenaline. And if you've never seen it before, it's treated simply as... Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is the Marvel Universe. There are people with abilities out there, whether you know it or not. So I thought I thought it was a really great nostalgic tug. I think that another great nostalgic tug is the stinger of Tom Hardy as Venom yeah. <laughs> is perfectly done. I laughed so hard because it was so perfectly done and such a loving wink to the audience because again it it works just like the daredevil thing yeah. it's like who is this guy what what's going on here but if you know you know and of course leaving some goo there so that uh you know if they want to play yes. with that as a storyline they definitely can so yes they can I, I have another good question for you too um what you know Unfortunately, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and especially Phase 4, has developed a bad habit of bad effects. And so, what did you think of this film and the way it was brought to life? Inconsistent, but I enjoyed it enough that I didn't care. And I think that speaks, I, I keep making reference to Lucas. Sometimes effects don't work. But if you love the movie, you say, okay, that didn't really work, but I get what you're going for. That's okay. It's befuddling in the sense that something that is this much of a tentpole, I don't know why certain effects didn't, like, you had the time and a dump truck full of money. I, I don't know why you couldn't get certain, certain swinging shots to look right. I don't know why you felt the need to replace Tom Holland completely in that shot. That sort of thing. But... Uh, you know, the the only truly egregious continual nudge in my eyeballs was um, the lizard. Um, just because the mouth never worked. And okay, like I rolled with it. I was like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. Let's keep moving. But, you know, the, I mean, you know, the stuff that was, you know, the Doctor Strange mirror universe uh, or mirror dimension or whatever it was or whatever they call it. Like all of that stuff that that works, um, the key stuff works, and there's some stuff that doesn't. But if I enjoy a movie enough, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, even rewatching the film here at home in 4K, and I, I think that it just generally looks more consistently better than the other films that we've really gotten in Phase Four. Um, you know, I think of. It definitely looks better than Eternals. Good grief. Well, yeah, but I mean, I even think, you know, we, and we both enjoyed Shang-Chi, right? But that final battle is kind yes. of a muddied mess, right? And yep. here, I, I thought that it was great that the final battle, the clarity that we got is pretty impressive for the amount of action that's happening that is just obviously completely computer animated. And so, you know, and I just thought, you know, speaking of the final battle, I just, it was great. It still holds up even rewatching it. It's so much fun the way they're working, end up working together, you know? Um, and I think even just being able to, you know, take a few moments to be able to have those characters all interact together, right. Was really special. And it's again, something that has been done better than the sequel trilogy of Star Wars, where we never got the big three interacting together again. This is exactly what you want. You want these characters having time to spend together. And even the, 
you know, five minutes that they get where they're talking about things together and, you know, Toby McGuire's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you, you know what? Just I want you to stop yourself. The self-talk that I'm hearing right here, that's not good. I mean, you're am- you're amazing, okay? You, you're, you're amazing. You know what my favorite part is, actually, and it's probably because I'm getting to be an old man now, is the two other Spider-Men talking about, yeah, my back. Oh, you know yes. what I found really helps me out? Like, that yes. is yes. That's the type of talk that I want in a movie like this is yes. these two Spider-Men, they're a little bit further down the road, and it's like, oh, geez, I mean – it's taking its toll on me. Yeah, you know what I do is I put my back like this and I go, oh my yeah. gosh, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, like it's so because good. who else can tell you who else could give you a tip for how to, to crack your back other than another Spider-Man because he knows exactly what you're going through. Like it's it's a thoughtful joke and it's a it's a great character moment. Well, you know, this is one of those films, in all honesty, John, where I just feel like you really could spend quite a long time talking on and on about all the little intricacies of this film. But I do want to ask you what your rating is for Spider-Man No Way Home. This is tough because I I fox guard the highest end of the scale because I... I it's just because I've been so gun shy over time of being accused of being fanboy, of being accused of this, of blah, 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 blah. I, I mean, the conversation has been so much fun that I really have a tough time with whether it's a four and a half or a five. A five in terms of how much I enjoy it. I, I will rewatch this again. I love it. I think this is great. It has emotion. It has humor. It has characters that I care about. It has great stuff. There are a couple of technical things that I think it falls a little short. There are a couple of cheats that it uses where I wish it hadn't done that. There are a couple of things where I have to have to look at it this way and that way. The the you know the lizard that that those effects really annoy me. They really bother me. <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I'm like, okay, it's okay. It's okay. I, I love it. I love it. And I'll overlook that. But um, I, I think that uh, this time I'm going to stick. I'm going to stay steady. And I'm going to give it a four and a half. Because as much as I love it, there are certain things that I think are just it's just toe over the line in terms of the nostalgia that there are a couple of sequences where they could have been put together a little bit better you referenced the ending i think what they're doing is so ambitious and compared to other things they're extremely successful but judging it on its own merits it does get a little fuzzy in terms of place at points and you know that i'm a you know, sort of a hard ass about that sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to give this, a, this is a solid four and a half with the, the little asterisk. I could see it going even higher next time because I just enjoy the hell out of this film so much. Yeah. I, I, in all honesty, I'm just right there with you. You know, having seen this movie a few times now, um, I think it's firmly entrenched in the four and a half and not for any reason that other than you know when i think of my my list um as it is there's only one true 5 for me and that's been the winter soldier and i think it's because the winter soldier was able to create that perfection in every single place to which I wasn't, there wasn't anything where I was like, eh, you know, and I think with uh, No Way Home, even as great as it's been in our conversation, yeah, there are still some little tiny things here and there that kind of like, you know, eh, I don't love that or whatever. Um, And yet, like you said, this film is so fun and just so well done, it is one that I'll just, I'll watch again because 
I enjoy it so much. So yes, it is a four and a half out of five for me, which is a, a massive rating for me in the MCU as well. And so with that, we're at our rankings. And now this is the place where I feel like this film legitimately has the ability to crack possibly the top five. Oh, let's not even so, be coy. I, I mean, I got to know, where does this land for you in your rankings? Keep in mind, I can't remember where I put what if, so we'll, we'll table that when, when you hear me read this off. But um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, come on. Uh, guys, do we really think anything's going to topple Winter Soldier? I mean, do I even need to say it? <laughs> Iron Man 3, right after that, toppling everything else and unsettling the order, Spider-Man No Way Home. This is the Iron Man 3 of Spider-Man movies, and that is the highest compliment I can give it. So, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Iron Man 3, Spider-Man No Way Home, the first Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Iron Man, Avengers Endgame, Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy, Hawkeye, Doctor Strange, Loki, the series, Civil War... Well, Captain America, Civil War, Captain America, the first Avenger, Ant-Man and the Wasp, the Incredible Hulk, Avengers Infinity War, Thor, Shang-Chi, Spider-Man Homecoming, the original The Avengers, uh, Howard the Duck, WandaVision, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Spider-Man, Far From Home, Thor the Dark World, Iron Man 2, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Age of Ultron, Black Widow, Captain Marvel, and Eternally in the Basement, Eternals. What about you, That's Matt? Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um. So things did switch around. Uh, so it is Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Iron Man, Iron Man 3, Spider-Man, No Way Home. There you go. Captain America, Civil War, Avengers, Endgame, Captain America, the first Avenger, Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Ant-Man, Hawkeye, I remembered What If... Doctor yeah. Strange, Shang-Chi, The Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man Homecoming, Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man of the Wasp, Loki, Avengers, Spider-Man Far From Home, Avengers Infinity War, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Thor The Dark World, Iron Man 2, Thor, Howard the Duck, still better than Black Widow, Avengers Age of Ultron, Captain Marvel, WandaVision, Thor Ragnarok, and of course, as you mentioned, Eternals. Isn't um, it funny how that's our anchor? That seems... Matt, do you realize <laughs> how disastrously bad an MCU movie is going to have to be to unseat Eternals? I thought Captain Marvel was bad. And then Eternals came I along, mean, and I can honestly say... Wow, I can't even like if if the MCU manages to release something that I like less than Eternals, you're going to hear, you know, Florida man torches local theater is what you're going to hear. Like that's what's going to happen. Like I'm going to I'm like yeah. going to get in a fist yeah. fight with a the theater manager uh, at the AMC yeah. down at Disney Springs cuz I want my money back and he won't give it to me and I'm going to be super mad <laughs> and then I'm going to start throwing <laughs> chairs around, they're going to arrest me, things are going to catch fire and I'm going to lose all of the well, good feeling. I mean, and maybe if you're lucky, what, you know, unseats Eternals is one of the Disney Plus shows. So, you know, you're just destroying your own home and not, you know, a movie and theater. I, 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 I got to be honest with you. I'd feel worse. Than, uh, I'd feel worse about that. I think maybe with my next <laughs> Disney Plus series, I need to go watch it at somebody else's house just to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness well uh that is our wrap up here and you know next uh speaking of disney plus series uh that's what's coming up next with moon knight and oscar isaac oh, no. as the title character uh but uh john if people wanted to catch up with you you know see uh if you've got any other marvel opinions or anything else going on where would they find you i'm being controversial on the internet as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. -S -S -E -E. Check me out on Letterboxd, where you can see my MCU list and other things having to do with movies. And go over to The Nerd Party, where you can hear me co-hosting two different shows. One with Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors through different genres, uh, periods of their career, all that sort of stuff. 
and a delightful, what I think is delightful, Star Wars podcast called Aggressive Negotiations, which I co-host with one Mr. Matthew Rushing. Well, I hope everybody will check that out. You can also find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, or Vero. Of course, here in the 602 Club with the main show, uh, and as well as on the TFM Network, you can find me doing literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Saddle Up about Strange New Worlds, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. And over on the Nerd Party Network, you can also find me doing Owlpost with Drea Kaufman as we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, we appreciate you joining us. Avengers! Avengers!